So tonight we're going to be continuing our journey through the first six chapters of Daniel. We're calling this uh, fall semester, this uh, season, uh, we're, we're calling this series uh, Courage and Chaos. <clears throat> and Daniel is very fitting. I have some, as we start tonight, I, I, I just have some, I've had some thoughts that I've been putting together, even since last week, um, in regard to where we are right now. I remember very well in 2008, I, I was, in 2008, it was a, a busy year. I did a lot of conferences, did a lot of traveling in 2008. And wherever I would go, I don't care what part of the country it was, I, I began to realize in 2008, I have never seen so many Christian men so stressed out, so anxious, so worried, uh, experiencing sleepless nights. I've never seen guys in this condition, ever. And you recall what was going on in 2008. I mean, pretty much a financial collapse. And uh, it, it was a time of a great loss for a lot of guys and great pressure and great uncertainty. And, and now we find ourselves in 2020. And what I want to say in 2020 is that I've never seen so many Christian men excessively stressed out. Because what's going on around us right now tops what happened in 2008. I, I was reading something by a guy by the name of Aaron Wren, and he writes a newsletter, and a Christian guy, and I thought this was interesting. He was talking about... Uh, he was talking about the testosterone-cortisol ratio. And we're guys, so we know about testosterone. He says, uh, I'll just quote him here. We live in a world that contains a lot of crazy. One way I deal with it is to manage my emotional state by monitoring and adjusting what I call the testosterone-cortisol ratio. Uh, testosterone and cortisol are hormones. Testosterone is the principal male hormone. And to kind of summarize what he's saying and what we know about testosterone, testosterone gives energy. It's real basic. Cortisol is, among other things, the body's stress hormone. Stress can be good at some levels, such as that coming from a vigorous workout at the gym, but chronic stress is unhealthy, and some say even dangerous, with a wide report, uh, range of reported uh, negative effects. You can think of cortisol as the hormone for losing energy. I remember years ago, my, my doctor told me that uh, 
he was going to put me on hydrocortisone because he said your adrenals are stressed out because you're stressed out. Maybe it was 2008, I don't remember. But he said, you're stressed out in your adrenals. And what happens, the fight or flight, that's when the cortisol kicks in. But what's happening right now, what's happening right now is, um, and this guy says it, is that far too many people are way too saturated with stress on a persistent basis. We're just stressed out. We're excessively stressed out right now. Now, the question is, why? Why are we stressed out? Well, I mean, you don't, I mean, this isn't rocket science. I, I, I see two reasons. Number one, uh, it's, you got, you got COVID-19 and, and the collateral damage. And there is collateral damage. We have, we have locked down portions of this country. We have taken extreme steps. We have, uh, in some parts of the country, it's, it's been taken as an opportunity for tyranny and authoritarianism. It, um, well, you know all about this. We, we've, got, we've got burning in the streets, we've got rioting, we've got defunding police officers. We've, uh, Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundations are being destroyed. And what we've always had and what we've always assumed would be here uh, is not in place right now. So the foundations are being shaken. We talked about this the last few weeks. And it is very unsettling. So... Uh, business have been shut down. That has economic impact on all kinds of people. There are ripple effects when a businessman has to shut down a business for it involves him and his employees. It involves the, the economy of that town, of the region. And when you multiply that over and over, it has huge ramifications. Um, churches are being shut down in certain parts of the country. While strip clubs are open and abortion clinics are open and bars are open, churches are shut down. And um, we, we've never seen anything like this. So as a result, I don't need to spend too much time on this, there is COVID, there's a lot of collateral damage. People who needed cancer treatments couldn't get it. People who needed surgeries couldn't get it. People, you, can, you know this whole drill. People have died because they couldn't get the treatment they normally would have gotten. So it's affected a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It's a very stressful time. Secondly, we are excessively stressed because of the ramifications, the potential ramifications of this upcoming election. And the thing that normally we do in Bible studies is we never talk about the obvious. Well, and I'm not sure why that is, because it's, it's obvious, and we've got an election, and it's probably the most important election since 1860, there is a um, tremendous amount at stake in this upcoming ele election. Uh, basically, uh, 
if you're paying attention, if you're looking at this, if you're looking at this seriously, and not just surface stuff, but if you're looking at it seriously and you're looking at it through the lens of history and you're looking at it through the lens of the scripture, what we have in this upcoming election is a referendum on the democracy that we have enjoyed and the freedom that we have enjoyed. That's how serious it is. Um, if you're serious, you understand there are ramifications. When, you know, there's, there's some value to getting old. There's some value to getting miles on your tires. Um, the value is, is that you've lived long enough to see certain things and you not only, not only have we studied some history, we've lived some history and you begin to pay attention to things that perhaps you didn't pay attention to as much when you were younger When you get older, you're more serious about life, and you're more serious. Why? why? Why would you be more serious about your life? Because as you get older, there's a certain point where you've got more years behind you than you have in front of you. So you begin to think about your children, and you begin to think about your grandchildren, and you begin to think about what kind of life they are going to have and what kind of future they are going to have. And when you see certain symptoms show up, not physically, but morally, when you see certain symptoms show up uh, spiritually that the scripture warns about, uh, you take heed because it lets you know that we're going in a direction that is counter to what God says we should be doing. And the outcome of that will not be good. <clears throat> if you own a business, and, 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 and men don't walk around talking about the pressure they're under. You just keep going. That's, that's kind of how it is. But if you have a business and you're doing everything you can do to keep it open, that's tremendous pressure that your employees probably don't have a clue about because they're just showing up at work and they've got their own lives and their own stuff going on, but they're just glad to have a paycheck. You're trying to make sure they have a paycheck. You're trying to do everything you can do to make payroll, but they're not aware of what you're dealing with and the massive amount of responsibility and you got a family and you're trying to provide for your family, and you're trying to provide, you know, enough down the road for retirement and for this and for all of this, and you're juggling all these balls. It's a tremendous amount of pressure. Just normal life is pressure for men. And then you add on to it all of this and an election that has significant ramifications. And, and here's what's happened in the last week. I've, I've talked to at least five different guys. And it's very obvious that they're under great pressure 
And they've shared some things, and I appreciate their candidness and their authenticity. They see what the ramifications are because they're looking at what's happening in this country from the lens of Scripture. We wrestle not, Ephesians 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities. There are spiritual forces. There, there, there is Satan and his minions, his demons, and they are at work behind the scenes. You go to foreign countries and you'll see satanic activity. Here you don't see it as much, so much, but the more pagan a nation becomes, the more you see it in excessive ways. It's pretty much been covered in our country. It's behind the scenes, but there's influence. And there is a fight. There is a spiritual battle. What I'm trying to say is, when I talk with these five guys, it was interesting to me, and I was thinking about this yesterday, that all of them were concerned about the ramifications, the evil ramifications surrounding this election that could cause us to lose our liberty and our freedom. When you talk about losing liberty and freedom, you're talking about losing freedom of worship, freedom of religion, other freedoms, uh, other rights that are God-given rights that our founders understood and put in those founding documents. But those founding documents are being ignored. And as a result of that, there are some very, very serious ramifications that are evil. You lose freedom of religion. You lose freedom of speech. We're looking at losing freedom. And if you think that is an, an exaggerated statement, you don't realize what we're up against. Because ideas have consequences. We're, we're living in... Uh, in Astonishing days, days of um, critical race theory, of intersectionality, words I, I've never heard until recently. And these ideas, they all come under the heading of social justice. But I'm reading a book right now, great title and a great book. And the title of the book is Social justice is not biblical justice. And it isn't. There's a whole movement, and the thing about this movement is, it's not around us, it's in the culture, but it's making, it, it's coming into the church incredibly fast. And, and you have got churches that are studying books that are published by Christian publishers, quote unquote, referring to scripture and I read one of those last week, and you know they would they would hit a scripture here and a scripture there. Interesting, quite frankly, the scripture that they camped on had absolutely nothing to do with the concept they were pushing. What they were pushing was cultural Marxism, and in cultural Marxism, what happens is you replace God with government. Now I've said some of this stuff before over the last few weeks. But we're in a season right now, and it's a critical season. 
The five guys that I talked to, each in their own ways, here's one of the things that deeply concern them. They see the evil and the ramifications and the consequences that could take place in this country. But there are people close to them that they love who are blind to the evil in their own families or in their group of close friends or in their church. And what happens is it makes things really uncomfortable and it makes things very, very awkward because people you love, maybe adult children, maybe a wife, maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know, could be anybody. They do not see the evil that potentially is coming upon us. They, 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 don't, they don't understand it. There's a superficial understanding. They oftentimes are very educated, but they're educated in the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. There is the wisdom of men, how blessed is the man, Psalm 1, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. They're educated in the things of the world, but they are not educated in the word of God, even though they perhaps have been raised to know the word of God. Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. A lack of knowledge about me, a lack of knowledge about what I've said and about my, and who I am. Uh, it, 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 we're living in remarkable times. I, I'm sure you've experienced this. People that are close to you, people that you love, they are, they are fixated on someone's personality which blinds them to the evil that is the real threat. Because they don't have spiritual discernment, because as Hebrews 5 says, and I've referred to Hebrews 5, I think, 2,900 times in the last four weeks, but they have not trained their senses to discern between good and evil because they're not consistently in the Word of God. We're living in unusual times. We're living in extraordinary times. First Chronicles 12, 32, it's talking about the different men that gathered to David um, and uh, assisted him when he was on the run. And from the tribes, it describes different guys, the tribes of Benjamin, you know. You get to 12, 32, First Chronicles, it says, and the men of Issachar, were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the times. They had discernment. They looked at what was going on through the lens of the Word of God. And they knew what Israel should do. This might be a little too direct for some. But... Uh, I've been thinking about this. We're, we're in a time right now for the, uh, for the soul of a nation 
for the future of the nation. We deserve God's justice, but we're asking for God's mercy. And you may even at times wake up in the middle of the night and this is on your heart because you're thinking about your children, maybe adult children, maybe younger children if you have them or grandchildren, and you're thinking about their future. What kind of nation are they going to grow up in? Are they going to have the liberty that, uh, that, that we had, that our kids had, or is that going to be taken away? And if you kind of look around at what's going on in this country, and you know this, once government gets power, they tend not to want to give it up. And this is kind of a, this is a, a precursor of coming events, coming to a theater near you, uh, coming to a church near you. And, and this is a time of spiritual battle and a time of a battle for a nation. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. There is much sin. There is exceptional evil in this country. But there are many, many Christian people that are calling on the name of the Lord and asking for mercy and asking that the liberties would be prolonged for a season because the gospel goes out from this nation. A lot of good goes out from this nation uh, that would be changed, that would be altered. And it would probably be gone permanently. This is a time of war. This is not a time, and this is what I was going to say, it might be a little bit too direct, but in my mind, this is not a time to put a Mr. Rogers in the White House. You don't need a leader at a time like this with his, um, with his sneakers and his cardigan sweater, who is slightly effeminate. And for a lot of Christians, and I mean this, he's the model of Christian masculinity. I can't tell you how many articles I read about Mr. Rogers. He's the model. I don't think he's the model. I think he was a man, obviously, that apparently uh, had a Christian worldview. To what degree he knew the Lord personally, I don't know. But gentleness is something that is a fruit of the Spirit. It's to be in our lives when it's appropriate. But we're not always to be gentle. Jesus was not always gentle. When Jesus cleared the temple twice, he didn't do it gently. He cleared it out. There are times when men need to be aggressive. There are need, times when men need to be confrontational, just as Jesus was. If you want a model of masculinity, look at Jesus. Jesus brought the appropriate trait to bear at the appropriate time. If you're always nice, uh, you're not going to be real effective with your life. Quite frankly, 
Because there's more to life than being nice. You understand what I'm saying. Jesus wasn't always nice. He would have been wonderful to be around. But uh, he was the essence of what manhood is. Manhood that's under the control of God. So at times he was aggressive. At times he was confrontational. At times he was gentle. Allow the little children to come unto me. But he brought the right trait at the right time. This is not a time for Mr. Rogers in the White House. This is a time for a George Patton in the White House. Because this is a time of war. And you got to get past personality and you got to look at what is going on. And so I go into all this because this is why in 2020 so many men are excessively stressed. Now, is there any consolation? Is there any hope? Is there any encouragement tonight? No. I'm sorry. <laughs> you got to have a little humor, guys. And that's not much, but um, the fact there is. So I want to go to Daniel 2 tonight. And you say, Steve, you've already used up three and a half hours. But I wanted to set it up and and just be honest about where we are. And again, you know, we, we've talked about some of this stuff in past weeks. We'll probably talk about it again right up until election night. And we're probably going to have to talk about it after election night because, you know, as I do, uh, things are going to get real interesting after the election no matter what happens. And we're going to be seeing stuff we've never seen before. So we just got to strap it up, get in the shoulder harness, and get ready and trust God for the future. But with our feet standing firm in the Word of God. So tonight what I want to do is I want to give you three facts I, that, 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 that comfort me and encourage me, and I think we'll do the same for you. And these are facts. These are, not, um, these are not ideas, these are not theories, these are not social constructs, these are not um, hypotheses, these are facts. And as Churchill said, facts are better than dreams. You want to live off the facts. So in Daniel chapter 2, so in Daniel 1, Daniel and his friends, are, they go into captivity with the nation in 605 B.C. They're going to be there for 70 years in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Lord delivered the nation because of their idolatry for hundreds and hundreds of years and their, their unbelievable wickedness. Right about where we are, same kind of wickedness. He delivers them over to Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is going to live there for the rest of his life. They go over there as teenagers. If you look at the last verse of Daniel 1, it says, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So that's his, the timeline of his entire life. They're taken as captives as teenagers. And then he continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Well, he would have been roughly... Late 80s, 90, something like that. Never returned to his homeland. Never returned to Judah. He was there for the rest of his life. In Daniel 2, 
Let me give you the first fact. Because we've been talking about this election, all right? Here's the first fact. The election is out of my control, but it is under God's control. The election is out of my control, but it is under God's control. Daniel 2, verse 1, and remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Babylon, they were the big dog. They were the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at this time. And he's the most powerful man in the world. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So here's the most powerful man in the world, and he can't sleep because he had some kind of dreams that absolutely terrified him. Now, the question is, why did he have the dreams? Well, there's a lot of answers. Well, because he was sleeping. Well, if he's so powerful, why was he sleeping? He never sleeps. God Almighty never slumbers. God Almighty never loses energy. He's God. He is self-existent. He has never lost an ounce of power. That's God. That's our God. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. So Nebuchadnezzar is asleep and God is awake and at work. Let me tell you why this guy had these dreams and they were terrifying. The most terrifying dreams anyone had ever had. And I'll show you that in a minute. Why did the most powerful man on the earth, why did he have these dreams that were so disruptive and scared him to death and made him get up and have to change his depends two or three times? Later in Daniel, his grandson is going to see the handwriting on the wall, and I think it's the King James that says their loins were loosened. You can fill in the gaps on that one. When God shows his power and his greatness and his majesty, we, we tremble. And you better hold on to the depends because he is an awesome God. Awesome. In power and wisdom and might and glory and goodness and holiness. He owns the world. He rules the world. Why did this king have all these dreams? I'll tell you why, because of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, the king's mind, is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. So God controls every human heart. So God invaded this guy's heart and invaded his life and invaded this, this his sleep, and gave him these dreams that absolutely terrified him. And the reason we know they were of a nature that had never, I I think it's safe to say no one had ever had dreams like this. I can't think of anyone in Scripture that had dreams of of this category with this much fear because of verse 2. Then the king gave order to call the magicians the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. Now, note that. It says he called, you know, these kings all have their advisors, their Ivy League guys, and, you know, they got the degrees, and, you know, they're published in 
journals and all that jazz. You know, they got the PhD credentials. And uh, they're in the good old boy for, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It says in verse 2, he got them all together, so they, he called them all together so that they could tell the king his dreams. Well, see, when the king would call those guys together, never before had he wanted them to help to tell him what he had dreamt. Never. The way it happened always was that he'd get them together and he would say, I had this dream. He'd tell them the dream. They'd get together. They'd spend some time. They'd go to country club for lunch. And they'd say, what if we said this? We put this together and you footnote it with that, you know. And yeah, oh, king, live forever. It means this. And it was just a big snow job. Because they didn't know what the dreams mean. But this guy's so freaked out. He's not asking. And he knows what they do. They didn't do anything. He knows that. And he's not messing around. Hey, if you guys are so stinking smart, this time you tell me what the dream was. Because I'm not messing around here. That's how serious this was. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, which is what you say to a king, because he has the power to take you out at any moment. Tell the dream to your servants, tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king said, the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn from limb to limb, and your houses will be made of rubbish sheep. He's not missing around. They've never seen anything like this. They reply in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on the earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the, king, the, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because this king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Daniel and his friends were in this program in Daniel 1, sort of the Nebuchadnezzar School of Government MBA program, and they weren't out of it yet. They hadn't graduated. They, hadn't, they don't have their PhDs. But they're, they're kind of triple A. They're not playing major league. They're triple A, double A maybe. But they're on their way. They're going to be in the big leagues. So they're included in this. Uh, this, this is fascinating. This takes me to fact two, okay? Fact two. What's the first fact? The election is out of my control, but is under God's control. Here's fact two. Daniel prayed, and God answered before he prayed. Daniel prayed, and God answered before he prayed. So, look at verse 14. Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? He didn't know. He didn't know what was going on. Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in. Now watch this. Watch the timing of this and the sequence. Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. So he says, hey, could you set me up an appointment with the king 
and I'll come in and tell the king what he dreamt and what the interpretation is. At this point, did he know what the dream was and the interpretation? Had God given it to him? No. But he went ahead and set the appointment because he knew God was in charge. He had an understanding that in spite of the circumstances of his life that had been turned upside down, that God had put him there for a reason. He had an understanding which led to faith. Hebrews says, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the, the, the evidence of things not seen. Um, it says without faith in Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please God for those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So on faith, he's saying set up an appointment and the Lord will show this to me, and I'll come in and tell the king. That, that's, uh, that's remarkable. You say, are you sure about this? Yeah, look at 17. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. 19, then, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So the, the mystery was given to him after he requested an appointment to tell the king what he had dreamt because he believed that God would give it to him even before he would walk in there. And that's precisely what happened. Um, let's look at a couple of verses 20 actually we just read 19 then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision then Daniel blessed the God of heaven Daniel said let the name of God be blessed forever and ever and remember these guys they're going to die they're, they're, their lives are going to be taken from them I mean, this is serious stuff. You talk about loss, they're going to lose their lives. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. How much wisdom does God have? God has all wisdom. How much power does God have? God has all power. He never loses an ounce of power. He never loses an ounce of energy. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the seasons. Had, there, had the, the, the times and the seasons of their lives been changed? Yeah. Have we experienced a change of plans, a change of seasons? Yes. Have our lives been in somewhat different states of upheaval and, you know, shock and what's next? And I mean, what's going to come tomorrow? Every day something new is coming along. But who is behind this? God's behind it. He is the one who changes the times and the seasons because he's in charge of all things. Watch this. It is he who changes the times in the epics, 21. He removes kings and establishes kings. So as um, I might have said last week or the week before, I vote early, I vote often. I'm shooting for six times this, this election go-around. He's got to go to different counties, different polling places. Anyway, just missing around. Don't send me an email on that. Am I going to vote? Actually, I already voted. 
Yeah, I voted. And I remember standing in line there thinking to myself, you know what's great, Lord? I'm voting, but you've already decided. I mean, it's a done deal. It's done. It's decreed. You raise them up and you set them down. And see, that's one of the messages of the entire book of Daniel. Is that God is sovereign over sovereigns. They would call kings sovereigns. Take a look at Isaiah 65, 24. I, I love these verses because what they do is they stabilize me. And they give me hope. And they give me perspective. We are inundated with deception and lies. Uh, absolutely inundated. But the sum of thy word is truth. I'll tell you, there's great wisdom in the morning. <laughs> of as tired as you may be and you're waiting for the caffeine to kick in, there's great wisdom in starting with the Bible. There just is. Because it's true. My dad, every morning, and my dad was, my dad was extremely disciplined. Every morning, my dad would get up, he'd grab his coffee, and he'd grab his Bible. And he was in the Word. I mean, that's how he started. I was being interviewed on Dennis Rainey's radio program with Bob Lapine, I don't know, 20 years ago. He said, you told me one time about your dad and his schedule. What does he do first thing in the morning? He said he gets his coffee and he gets his Bible. He said every morning. He said every morning. He doesn't miss. He doesn't miss. Unless he's sick and he's never sick. He said, why don't we call your dad and ask him? what he did this morning. This is national radio. I said, sure. And uh, so I wrote out his number and gave it to the assistant, and they took it in there. And the guy said, hey, uh, well, Steve, we've got your dad on the phone. And uh, I said, hey, Dad, uh, you're on the radio nationwide with uh, Dennis and Bob. And uh, Dennis wanted to ask you a question. And I, I got to tell you something. I had absolutely no anxiety about this. I had none. And Dennis said, hey, Jim, how you doing? He goes, fine. Doing great, Dennis. How are things in Arkansas? Good. Hey, we're, we're doing this interview with Steve, and uh, we were just talking about you. And Jim, I'd like to ask you a question if it's all right. He said, yeah, shoot. He said, so Jim, what did you do first thing this morning? He said, well, I got up. I got my coffee. I got my Bible, and I did my Bible study. I knew he was going to say that. I mean, I knew he was going to say that. Because that's what he did. My dad had a lot of flaws. Just like I have a lot of flaws, just like you have a lot of flaws. But he had some things in place. And they were in place. And that was one of them. And I learned from that. Isaiah 65, 24 says this. 
It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Now, now just think with me for a minute, okay? Daniel and Daniel 2 is in a crisis because the king's going to take his head off along with all the other guys. Who manufactured the crisis? God. God manufactured the crisis. God created the crisis when he caused Nebuchadnezzar's mind to be penetrated with those frightening dreams. So the crisis is from God. Ecclesiastes says, um, consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent in the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. God uses both prosperity and adversity. Sometimes God will put, life is going along nicely and God will put us in crisis because he wants to take us deeper. And he wants, us, he wants to teach us to trust him. And so I am submitting to you that God manufactured the crisis when they find out about the situation, the crisis, which will cost them their lives, he says, make an appointment with the king and I'll come in with the interpretation and the dream itself. And that is precisely what happened because you see, when God manufactured the crisis and interrupted his sleep, it was the plan of God that Daniel who was sensitive to him, God knows all things. Now, can I explain how all this works? No, all I can tell you is he's God. And before Daniel prayed, the answer was on the way. This is what the Lord does. When they were at the Red Sea, and the people were trapped, and there was no escape, and they were going to be taken back into captivity, the Lord looked down and, went, and, then, and he looked down and do a double take of what the heck is going on down there? My gosh. Well, of course not. That's stupid. He knew exactly when they left Egypt, he knew what was going to happen at the Red Sea and he knew how he was going to deliver them. Because you see, he's a savior. And before we call, he will answer. He'll, he will allow you he will send you into crisis. It might be from your own sin. It might be from your own uh, hard-heartedness. He's trying to get your attention. Sometimes he just wants to teach us to trust him. But if he sends us into crisis, he's got a solution in the wings that's ready. Now, that's a great God. Before you call, I will answer. And while you are still speaking, I will hear. Now, go down to 66 two. This tells you why God answered their prayer. Because it tells you about their walk with the Lord and their character and what was in their hearts. Second half of 66.2, God says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God loves humility. Jesus... Uh, <laughs> Jesus is the supreme example of humility, Philippians 2. Although he existed in God, as God did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, so he laid aside his privileges and he came to earth. 
And he came to earth for what reason? He came to earth to become the God-man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, and he went to the cross, and he took the sins of the whole world upon him, and he paid for the sins of the whole world. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's humility. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. Jeremiah 45, 5, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Nothing wrong with wanting to work hard and provide for your family and do a good job. But when you're looking to, uh, when you're looking to attain to the seat of honor and to get the adulation of men and to get the glory of men, you're in trouble. Because glory goes to God. And by the way, whatever you have, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and what do you have that you did not receive? It's a gift. Humility. I, I thought this was interesting this week. I, th I thought it was fascinating, actually. I was talking to a friend of mine and a couple days ago, and he said, did you happen to see uh, Trump's speech the other night, and I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, he said, uh, he, and I really respect this guy's walk with the Lord. He said, you know, I've been sensing the guy's rough. The guy's rough. There's no doubt about it. He's abrasive. But at times, I see glimmers of a change. And he said, the other night, he was giving this speech, some rally, and he told this story. He said, someone said to me recently, you're the most famous man on the earth. And he said, no, I'm not. He goes, yeah, you're, you're the most famous man on the earth. You're the president of the United States. He goes, no, I'm not the most famous, not by a long shot. Well, who is the most famous? And Trump said, Jesus Christ is the most famous. And the crowd goes crazy. And then he went on, and I can document it right here, and I'm not pulling it out. He went on, and he gave God glory for God taking him through COVID and healing his body. Now, we got all kinds of sound clips of him being abrasive and rude and all that, just as I'm glad they don't have all the sound clips of me being that way. But that was humility. And then yesterday, Rush Limbaugh was talking about his cancer diagnosis and basically said uh, it's a death sentence. Didn't even think I'd be alive on this date, but I am. And He said, but I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I go to bed at night and I thank him that he gave me this day. And when I wake up in the morning, I thank him that I woke up. Those are two pretty strong guys that have had a lot of success, that have had a lot of accolades, that got a lot of money, and they've been humbled. It's a mercy of God when he humbles us. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Fact three, the battle is the Lord's. 
The battle is the Lord's. And I have 35 seconds. So let's turn to 2 Chronicles 20. This was a king by the name of Jehoshaphat. You may be looking for a name for your male son who will be coming in a few months. I wouldn't give him that one. But it's a good name. So in 2 Chronicles 20, what happens is that Jehoshaphat, who had a heart for the Lord, he gets news in 2 Chronicles 20 that there are some armies that are gathered together at Engedi, which was just a day's march away from Jerusalem. And some scholars, it doesn't say exactly how many there were, but some scholars have, you know, said it could have been 750,000, an army up to a million men. And they're just a day's march away from invading the nation of Judah. And I mean, he is facing overwhelming odds. It was a handful of people in Jerusalem. I mean, he, he was so far outnumbered. He was, so, he was outmatched. He was outnumbered. He was outgunned. He was out everything. And he gets the news. Verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And then he got all the people together and they prayed. And he said in verse 6, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Now, this is how we have to think, guys. As we're looking at what's going on and what might happen, because everything we're being told, and every, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. It's overwhelmingly going to go the wrong way. Okay. Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? What is this guy doing? He is rehearsing to himself the truth about God. Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Sounds like Daniel. Did you, O oh our God, not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Yes, you did. And then he goes down to verse 12. He says, oh, our God, will you not judge them? Watch this. For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. And here's what I see talking to a lot of Christian guys. They feel overwhelmed and they feel powerless. But we're not powerless. The fact is we're not powerless because of who our God is and who Jesus is. That's the fact. He says, will you not judge them for we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then the prophet comes to him in verse 15 and he said, listen all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is the Lord's. And then he tells them something unusual, 17. You need not fight in this battle, station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, don't fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. 
And then in 20, Jehoshaphat says, listen to me, O Judah, in the heavens the next morning of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And then you read the rest of the verse and what happens is the three armies that were gathered together turned on one another and slaughtered each other. And their task is to pick up the plunder and the spoil and the supplies and the And as a result of God's action and God's movement and God's intervention, look at verse 29. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. That's our God. And he's got a plan and we don't know what he's going to do. But whatever he does, he's still our God. He's still our Savior. He's still our Lord. He's still calling the shots. He's still running the show. Even if it goes contrary to the way we'd like to see it go. You say, Steve, I hope that doesn't happen. Well, I'm with you. I'd have a hard time if, if God did that. Well, we don't know what he's going to do. But what he's going to do is right. And here's the other thing. He said in Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. How many crises has he brought you through? Why would he stop now? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank, thank you that you are trustworthy and that you have the good of your people in mind. Thank you for Jesus and for what he accomplished for us on the cross. And thank you that we have eternal life. We will all take our last breath at some point, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's when the good times start rolling. Thank you for that hope. Keep us encouraged tonight as we rest and in the morning when we get up. Keep us going on the word of God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.